And if you want, you can turn to Matthew 25. That's where we're going to be today. I'm going to read for us the story, and then we'll walk back through it together. So you, if, you, if, you, if you have a scriptures, it's, it's worth opening. Um, but Matthew 25, this is Jesus talking. Saying to his disciples, he said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, those goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you? A stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you? Sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Amen. Truly, truly, I say unto you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, that's the end. Literally, and in the literary structure of Matthew's gospel, this is the end of Jesus' ministry. What follows are the familiar details about the final days of Jesus, just before he's crucified and buried. Jesus' supper with his disciples, his betrayal by a close friend, a more intimate friend's denial, his mock trial, a governor's sad wonder about truth, the crowd's rejection, the brutality of his dying, and even the care taken at his entombment. But before we enter this final stretch of Jesus' journey, he confronts us with one more searing image of what life with God is truly about. A story that tends to stick with us, whether we like it or not. So let's go ahead and get some of the obvious questions out of the way. Then maybe we can see what Jesus hopes we see. That him in our need and the neediness of others. Because I think that's what this is actually trying to get us to see. So the section of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 and 25 is called the Olivet Discourse. In case you didn't know that. It's because the, Matthew 24 starts this way. It says, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things to be, and we'll, what will be the sign of your coming of the close of the age? When was the end of incoming? How is it going to take place? And Jesus answered them. So he's talking to his disciples. His disciples have come to him. His ministry is about done. They've seen all of his teaching. They've heard all of his teaching and preaching. They've seen all of his miracles. They've seen the way he's tried to demonstrate what life with God looks like. And he's saying, hey, listen, like there's an end coming, and there's an end of ends coming. And so they're like, hey, how do we get there? What is it going to look like? Give us the details. Jesus then goes on not to give those who followed him the past several years the specific timing of, and signs of the end of ends, but tells stories to help them navigate the delay between the end of his ministry and the end of time. 
Those are the stories that we've looked at the last few weeks. So while our story today feels much more at the end of ends, after all, it's the way it starts out, right? When the Son of Man comes in His glory. The story is no more about the literal particulars of the future than the others. Instead, it too is meant to help us see how we live between the ends. How we, as one poet called it, practice resurrection. So, knowing that this story doesn't take place in it by itself, in an isolated little, little vacuum, but takes place in the midst of Jesus' ministry as it comes to an end, when his disciples ask, how do we get to the end? When do we see it's coming? What does it look like? And instead of telling them the specifics, he says, not even the Son of Man knows, and then tells them stories. Again, stories to help them figure out how to live in between. Knowing that's super helpful. It helps us maybe fill the story a little bit differently. But we also probably need to know a little bit about the cultural context, I think, to get what maybe his disciples would have, would have gotten a little more clearly. Knowing a bit about the, what those listening to him might have recognized in the words that he uses, I think it's pretty important. Because Jesus hints at a familiar image for his followers and friends in the first opening lines. So Matthew 25, verse 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, He will sit on His glorious throne. First century Judaism, especially in Judea, had an apocalyptic fascination. We wouldn't know anything about that. We're not those kind of people, right? We don't live in a different era. Like people aren't fascinated with the end, and the end times, and the end of all things. Like we're not ready for the Lord to move in a way to end all evil and all that kind of stuff. That's none of us. But that was first century Judea and first century Jews. Apocalypse, apocalypse was all about them. And think about it. The Jews in this part of the world had for centuries found themselves caught between opposing forces. Political forces, economic forces, cultural forces, forces from within and factions from within and forces from without, all vying for control of this little swatch of earth that seemed really important to life forever. It seemed that they perpetually lived amid wars and rumors of wars. So no wonder they clung so closely to the visions of the end of wars in the Old Testament. And from their clinging to these, also in the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, a slew of apocryphal writings were made popular in, the, in this era. This is where we get a lot of the Jewish tradition of what they thought about the end times and when the apocalypse would come and Armageddon and all those things was written in the midst of all this time waiting for Jesus' arrival. Images especially like the ones from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, a throne, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel's vision of the Son of Man's coronation follows Daniel seeing four fantastic beasts opposed to the Ancient of Days and one another. In the, in the verses preceding this, Daniel describes terrifying beasts with all kinds of horns and eyes and all these figures and all these kind of things that are warring against one another, warring against God's people, warring against God himself. And according to the, the angel helping Daniel interpret what he was seeing, the arrival of the Son of Man and the establishment of His glorious throne coincided with the saints of the Most High receiving the kingdom and possessing the kingdom forever, forever, and forever. When the Son of Man arrives and He's put upon His throne, this is the end of the end. This is it. This is when all of evil is going to be wiped away. So hearing Jesus' first words would have evoked all the images of the end of time, when judgment was going to be given for the saints 
On behalf of God's people, God was going to come and end evil. Over all the nations that conflicted and all the opposition that stood against them. So when Jesus continues his story saying, Before the Son of Man will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, the all-Jewish disciples are imagining a Daniel-esque judgment and destruction, a beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, the ones who made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and established his kingdom. This is what they, in just the first line, these are the images that would have popped up in their mind. These are the word, these words would have triggered in their memory this kind of, this kind of movement of God in this grand, almost destructive way, right? That finally an end to all those evils which torment God's people. Finally, an end to every rebellion against the Most High. Finally, an end that to even fighting against themselves, the, fi- the fighting that happens between evil that causes so much destruction in our world. An end that in all accounts in the, uh, the Old Testament seems to appear to be a violent clash. Right? But instead of describing a violent crash, a clash of, of beast versus beast, and a coming in this powerfully moving moment, Jesus says this, and he will separate people one from another. He'll judge, he'll bring judgment, as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. Often, I think a bit unfairly, the images of the end of evil in the Old Testament feed our twisted view of the world, that somehow evil operates outside of the care of God, or that it is a force that opposes with somewhat equal, if not at times, more power. And in truth, we probably feel that way sometimes, right? Like, even though we believe that that's not true, we feel that evil operates in a way outside of the purview of God, or at least in a way that seems oftentimes just as as prevalent, just as powerful as the God that we serve. But as Jesus' story envisions for us, all those seemingly terrifying and powerful nations, and all the ones not so, find themselves rather in this massive conflict that we feel like we're in all the time, rather under the watchful care of a shepherd king. That this is the vision of life as it really is. They all, both the sheep and the goats, are part of his flock. With the disciples' imagination of the end validated, their arrival of the end of the matter, as Daniel would call it, of the end of evil and the establishment of forever kingdom and the saints with God, it's real, right? He's saying, Jesus is saying, listen, this is really going to happen. There really will be an end to all these things. But at the same time, that same truth is not only validated, it's also offended. The end not being nearly as violent as depicted, nor depicting the opposition being on the outside, but rather a part of the same flock. Jesus now paints for his friends a picture of the end that is not so different than the in-between. At the end of ends, we get in on life with God forever the same way we get in on life with God today. By being vulnerable and needy with him and others. Let me see if I can explain. Listen, it's absolutely true that how we relate to others is directly correlated to how we relate to God. Even more so than what we say we believe about God. It's absolutely true. Our scriptures are are pretty clear on this. Jesus himself is abundantly clear on this. That how we relate to others is directly correlated to how we relate to God. More so than just what we believe. In fact, he said something like this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
Or as John the Beloved, who's one of the disciples there on, that was at the beginning when Jesus' first sermon, and now there at the end of Jesus' last sermon, as he would later write, he would say, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? How we live with one another reveals the thoughts of our hearts because it reflects how we are living with Jesus, who in just a few days will fall and rise, just as Simeon told Mary he would. Let me say it differently. Jesus' story does not say that if you do enough good deeds, your end goes well. That's not what the story is saying. But if you fail to do good deeds, you are out. That's inconsistent with every other story he has told, right? In fact, it's not only inconsistent, but the opposite of life with God he has painted for us so far. Think about it. How do we get in on the kingdom of God in the first place? You remember our first story? We get in by being lost, sheep, buried, coins, siblings who squander life by trying to live it on our own or never asking the Father for it directly. It finds us. We don't find it. Why are you planted in the kingdom? For profit? To live off what you yield or for delight? To enjoy what you produce? What is expected of you in the kingdom? To bear the fruit of who you are? To live to the fullest and for delight? Or something else? What happens when you don't meet expectations? What happened when the fig tree failed to have figs? Well, you're met with divine sadness and sacrificial cultivation. What are you expected to be able to do in the kingdom? Build towers? Negotiate your way through? Well, no, it seems like nothing on your own. Only give what you have. Not calculate or negotiate, but abandon your life to the fullest affection of the one you follow. What keeps you from experiencing the joy of the kingdom? Like the young women who forgot their lamp. It seems to be the only thing that kept them out was not walking with the light. Not not being loved, not not being invited, but not being with or in the light when the party finally arrives. How do we find ourselves in the joy of the kingdom? How do we find ourselves in the joy of the master, living off of what he's given us? By living off of the life our master actually trusted us, not hiding it away at a self-preserving arrogance or fearful hesitation. Those are the images of the kingdom Jesus has given us so far in his life and ministry. A kingdom that comes to find us, even as we find it. Of a time of being um, up on life on our, a time being up on life on our own, and yet ripe for finding life has always been in Him. So why would Jesus change the picture now? Why would He give a depiction of life with God determined by good works or lack thereof? My contention is that He wouldn't. So there must be something else to what Jesus is saying. So let's look a little bit closer about what he actually did say and see if we can see it too. Matthew 25, verse 33 says, And the Son of Man will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the sheep, the shepherd king says, Come into life as it has always been, blessed by my Father. And inherit, not earn or conquer or take or achieve or even arrive at the kingdom, but inherit it. Inherit life with God, for that is the life you were made for, and the life made for you since the very beginning. 
Listen, Jesus is not giving us a new image, but an old one renewed, as it were, in the light of him. He's just saying what God said in Genesis 1. That this is what is but has been prepared for you. Life with me, life forever. Jesus goes on, the story goes on. Verse 35, 4. Now listen, we need to stop at that word for a second. And then we usually don't, right? We just kind of read it and just keep going. But listen, the word for, the word translated for in the Greek, while used to express cause or explanation, like because or, or whatever, um, it's also used to note continuation. It's not just, hey, you're welcome into the kingdom. Here's, here, look, you're blessed by my Father. You've been, you've been given an inheritance. You're actually living the thing that was made for you to live because you've done these things, but rather in continuation. The conjunction keeps the flow of what precedes it. So Jesus says, you get the life with God once for you. You get the life God wants for you for, in continuation with, you're living in the life God wants for you. You get the life God wants for you for you're living the life God wants for you. That's what it's reading. You get the life God wants for you for you're living the life God wants for you. And then he depicts the kind of renewed life that they're living. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Those in on life with God forever are those in on life with God now. I, you, me. 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 But since this vision of life in the end and between the ends is a bit different than disciples' assumption, because it's, it feels weird to think that life forever starts now and continues, and there isn't something done that just flips the switch over. Because that seems a little weird, and because it seems like, based on all of our instincts, that there's something that we've got to do to earn our way into this. There's something we've got to do that will, that will get us in on this. Besides just being in life with God, it feels a little strange. And so Jesus kindly gives voice to their confusion and to maybe ours. Then the righteous. You remember what the term righteous means to the Hebrews, right? Like it's not a moral word, not primarily anyway. It has morals implied in it, that you're living a moral life. But it's not a morals in the sense of a code book of morals. Do this and don't do this. It means literally to relate rightly and appropriately to those around you. That you relate rightly to those that are with you in life, to those that are underneath you in life, to those that are above you in life. You relate rightly to God, all in wonder, fear, amazement, subjugation, submission. But you also relate rightly to your spouse and to your kids and to your neighbors in a way that meets who they actually truly and fully are. And so Jesus calls those in his kingdom, living life with him, righteous, those who relate rightly to God and others. And he'll answer them saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and in need or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, amen. I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you did it to me. How did the surprise insiders live life with Jesus? By being where he was. 
And where is Jesus? Well, it seems like he's in the hungry, the thirsty, the displaced and the shamed, in the ill and in the imprisoned. In truth, Jesus was where he is always. And in truth, he is where they too were found. With the least and the lost and those most in need of life. Isn't that where we all of us are found by Jesus? Isn't that all of the way we got into the kingdom? Not by figuring it out, but by being found in the moment of our neediness. Whether our neediness was simply we needed to know who God is. We were thirsty and hungry after how to relate rightly. Hungry and thirst after righteousness. Or maybe we were literally at a point of vexation where we were without what we could to survive. Maybe we just felt completely ashamed and exposed in our shame. Maybe we are literally, physically ill and at the place of the end. Or maybe, 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 we were ones who found ourselves not at home, but longing for it. Isn't that when Jesus arrived? Isn't that where Jesus was? Isn't that where he always is, even now? Those who share in God's life forever share life with God now. They are the ones Jesus finds, finding they are with him as he is finding others, taking on the vulnerability and neediness of others, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. In other words, in the end, they were living like the end was already here. Finding that God is indeed in the places and the people of need where daily death is happening so that they might possess life. So that where falling is happening so that they might rise again. That's where Jesus is. And those who live life with Jesus find him there. They find themselves there. And they find him in the place of others. Listen, if the story ended there, if that's all Jesus had to say, that is, we're, we're found in neediness, and life with him looks like being in the place of neediness, not just our own, but the neediness of others, willing to enter into the neediness of others. I mean, hey, let's, let's, listen, like it's actually kind of a funny thing to think, that the righteous are surprised. Wait, wait, wait when did we see you? When did we see you? When did we see you? Again, it's not even something like Jesus is brilliant, right? And he's funny. They couldn't, they didn't even know that they were, they were doing it right. <laughs> They didn't even know they were doing it right. There was, no, there was no logbook for them to check off. I've got it all figured out, and I've got it all right. I've done all those kind of things. Jesus says, no, they simply lived where I was, in their own neediness, in the neediness of others. If that story ended there, we'd be happy, I think. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe we'd feel a little, a little unease. But the reason this story sticks is probably because we feel a little unease. And sometimes in the not-so-good ways. Because the sheep aren't the only ones in the story. We need to know what happens to the goats at judgment, don't we? Do you, ever, do you feel that need? I don't know about you, but as I read the story, I feel the need. I feel a little bit less like a sheep and more like a goat. Maybe that's not you, but that's definitely me. So, I need to know what happens. What's, what's happening here? And so Jesus continues the story. Then he, the Son of Man, will say to those on his left side, 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That stinks. But notice how Jesus says it. And notice what Jesus is saying. Depart from me. Depart from me presumes that they were not always separated from him. Depart from me. Not stay outside. You were never in. Just stay out there. Keep on in your little day. It says, depart from me. You, sheep and goats are the same flock. They're, just, they're all inside. You're a part of my care and my shepherding, even if you didn't know it. Depart from me presumes that they were not always separated from him, but instead sounds like they had always lived by his life for them, even if they did not know it. Even if they didn't know it. Even if I don't know it and don't believe it. My life is lived because of Jesus. I breathe because Jesus breathes. We live because God chooses for us to live. And as Peter would say at the end of his second letter, that every day we wake up into that, we wake up into it because God longs to pour out his grace upon the world so that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That we breathe in the life of God. And that's always been true, whether we believe it or not. So if you have breath, it's because God breathes life into you. Whether you believe it, whether they believe it or not. But there will be a time when he says, depart from me. Then he says, rather than being described as blessed by my father, those on the left are called cursed. But you notice that the father doesn't curse them like he blessed the others. They are not wished dead, but instead their experience, what is true, is simply stated as a fact. They are now on the outside of the life they were made for. It's just true. It's not blessed by my father. It's you're simply cursed. This is the truth of it. You're on the outside of life of the way it was meant to be. Instead of inheriting what was prepared for them from the world's first beginning, they enter into what was prepared for the source of wickedness and evil. It wasn't prepared for them. Is prepared for the source of wickedness and evil, a forever end. They were not intended to be there, but continue to live there in the same way the sheep continue living where they do. For, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. And instead of Continuing to hurl the I, you, and me. He says, just naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and you imprisoned, and you did not visit me. But the same I, you, me pattern continues. All of life, all of life of those outside on the goat side are still lived in life with God. Even if they don't recognize it. The goats of the story did not live with Jesus, even as if we'll see in just a second they were willing to serve him. Jesus says, then they will also answer saying, just as confused as bewildered as the righteous, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister, did not serve you? Then he'll answer them saying, Amen, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. They recognize the shepherd king, at least in the end. Our scriptures are pretty clear about that. They recognize him as the Lord and would have been willing to serve him, it seems, but they weren't looking for him in the places or people where he could be found, which implies that they did not meet him in their own vulnerability and neediness either. 
They were looking for him in the places, they were not looking for him in the places where he could be found, which implies they did not meet him in their own vulnerability and neediness either. The difference between the sheep and the goats, it seems, is where they lived before the end. With Jesus in the brokenness of their own lives and others, or somewhere else. That seems to be the only difference. And both are kind of surprised. Because <laughs> maybe the goats were looking for him somewhere else. Maybe in their religion. Maybe in themselves. Maybe in whatever thing that consumed their lives. But they weren't looking for him in the place where he was. In their own lostness and leastness and neediness and that of others. The story ends with a striking image of one group marching off into a distant horizon of forever destruction, of a life in opposition to life itself, coming to a final conclusion. In contrast, another group moves to a distant land of life forever and full. And oftentimes, that's what the image that sticks in our brains, right? That's the one that permeates our thoughts and sometimes fuels our fears. And just as that image starts to settle into those listening, maybe even as it's doing for us, wondering which line they find themselves in, if they're honest. Jesus says this to his disciples. When he had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that in two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The image of the end of time and the image of Jesus on the cross the once and forever sacrificial lamb being cursed so we can enter into life made for us, found in his being broken for us, are inseparably linked. The image of the end of time and the image of Jesus on the cross are inseparably linked. And I think that's on purpose. The wonder and weight of Jesus' fall and rise are that it enables us to all live like sheep, to find ourselves by his grace and his efforts where he is, at the places of greatest vulnerability and need. And while even the sheep don't always see him in such persons and places, I believe that his desire is for us to live with eyes wide open, to not only our need for him, but his presence in the neediness of others. The Lenten season gives us a particular time to focus on seeing Jesus where he is through things like fasting, and the practice of the Lectio through the penitential psalms that we'll enter into starting in a couple weeks, or next week, I guess. But also by giving up those things that distract our vision of neediness. Because I think maybe, maybe this has, it wasn't true in all times, but it's certainly true in our time. Being vulnerable and needy is not something that we do with a lot of vigor and willingness. In fact, we try to do everything we can to not be vulnerable and needy. And not just in our efforts to not do it, but in our habits that distract us. Oftentimes, we miss out on the vision of our own neediness and vulnerability, of that even of our own neighbors and family members, simply by letting ourselves be distracted. That's what abstaining, our new-to-us Lenten habit, is all about. Asking ourselves and one another what in our daily habits our activities, our attitudes, our interactions keep us from seeing Jesus in the places of need, of being and receiving the vulnerable, and thus living like the end is already here. What distracts us from filling our neediness and vulnerability, from filling the neediness of our friends, 
from sharing in our own neediness, sharing our own neediness and sharing in the neediness of our neighbor? What keeps us from those things? If we're honest, we don't like to think about that. We don't willingly just go there. And that's in part why the church for thousands of years now has had the Lenten season. To say, hey, together, this is uncomfortable. But this is where Jesus leads us. To fall with him into this looking at what distracts us from our vulnerability and our neediness. To fall into our vulnerability and neediness and to rise again through his brokenness and willingness to give his life for us. Maybe it's a tendency, thing to distract us, maybe it's a tendency to reach for a screen or turn on some other sound or jump into a do list when we feel vulnerable in conversation and quiet, when we see a need around us. Perhaps it's the way you start the day or the way you finish it to keep you distracted enough to miss Jesus in your place of neediness and the neediness of others. Or maybe it's not so subtle, it's not so subtle as a habit, but an explicit sin. A way of living off the mark of God's life in you. Whatever it is, we're asking each other, we're inviting each other to give that up. So for the next 40 days, starting on March 1st, technically, to give those things up. For if you and I, and I believe we are, people who desire to be with Jesus, to see Jesus where he is, to look, then we have to look for him where he says he'll be and help one another and our neighbors do the same. So here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. After I get done praying, before you enter into reflection, We'll have just a, qu- a couple quiet minutes of reflection. We won't do a group discussion today. But before you enter into a reflection, come up and grab your communion elements. Take the sign of what Jesus has done for us, the symbol of what he's done for us, his body broken, his blood poured out. Take these, and as you're reflecting on the questions, and I'll tell you what those questions are in just a second, as you're reflecting on this idea of seeing Jesus, meeting Jesus in your own vulnerability and in the vulnerability of others. Hold in your hands and consider what Jesus has given you. Let that be a thought of how vulnerable Jesus was for you. And also when you're fearful of being vulnerable and needy, a reminder that he's already given you life. Pray with me. Father, as we open ourselves to your life in us, in our lives and yours, help us to see those in need of life, those longing for it, those striving for it, and even those who have given up on it. Father, let our heart be like yours, full of compassion and encourage to enter into their neediness as you have entered into ours. Give us eyes to see you in our spouses, our children, our siblings. To see you in our roommates, our classmates, our teammates, 
to see you in our coworkers, our neighbors, and in the neglected. And with eyes fixed on you, let us give what we have, which you've given for what is needed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you're ready, come and grab your communion elements. And then here's a couple questions just to sit in quietly for a few minutes. And then I'll lead us in receiving our communion together in about five minutes or so. So go ahead and grab your communion elements. And then make your way back to your seats for a time of quiet.